Chapter Twenty Four of the Iron Heel by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw. Nightmare. I had not closed my eyes the night before on the twentieth century, and what of that and of my exhaustion, I slept soundly. When I first awoke, it was night. Garthwaite had not returned. I had lost my watch and had no idea of the time. As I lay with my eyes closed, I heard the same dull sound of distant explosions. The inferno was still raging. I crept through the store to the front. The reflection from the sky of vast conflagrations made the street almost as light as day. One could have read the finest print with ease. From several blocks away came the crackle of small hand-bombs and the churning of machine-guns, and from a long way off came a long series of heavy explosions. I crept back to my horse-blankets and slept again. When next I awoke, a sickly yellow light was filtering in on me. It was dawn of the second day. I crept to the front of the store. A smoke-pole, shot through with lurid gleams, filled the sky. Down the opposite side of the street tottered a wretched slave. One hand he held tightly against his side, and behind him he left a bloody trail. His eyes roved everywhere, and they were filled with apprehension and dread. Once he looked straight across at me, and in his face was all the dumb pathos of the wounded and hunted animal. He saw me, but there was no kinship between us, and with him, at least, no sympathy of understanding. For he cowered perceptibly and dragged himself on. He could expect no aid in all God's world. He was a helot in the great hunt of helots that the masters were making. All he could hope for, all he sought, was some hole to crawl away in and hide like any animal. The sharp clang of a passing ambulance at the corner gave him a start. Ambulances were not for such as he. With a groan of pain, he threw himself into a doorway. A minute later, he was out again and desperately hobbling on. I went back to my horse blankets and waited an hour for Garthwaite. My headache had not gone away. On the contrary, it was increasing. It was by an effort of will only that I was able to open my eyes and look at objects. And with the opening of my eyes and the looking came intolerable torment. Also, a great pulse was beating in my brain. Weak and reeling, I went out through the broken window and down the street, seeking to escape, instinctively and gropingly, from the awful shambles. And thereafter, I lived nightmare. My memory of what happened in the succeeding hours is the memory one would have of nightmare. Many events are focused sharply on my brain, but between these indelible pictures I retain are intervals of unconsciousness. What occurred in those intervals I know not. And never shall know. I remember stumbling at the corner over the legs of a man. It was the poor hunted wretch that had dragged himself past my hiding place. How distinctly do I remember his poor, pitiful, gnarled hands as he lay there on the pavement, hands that were more hoof and claw than hands, all twisted and distorted by the toil of all his days, with on the palms a horny growth of callus a half-inch thick. And as I picked myself up and started on, I looked into the face of the thing and saw that it still lived, for the eyes, dimly intelligent, were looking at me and seeing me. After that came a kindly blank. I knew nothing, saw nothing, merely tottered on in my quest for safety. My next nightmare vision was a quiet street of the dead. I came upon it abruptly, as a wanderer in the country would come upon a flowing stream, only this stream I gazed upon did not flow. It was congealed in death. From pavement to pavement, and covering the sidewalks, 
It lay there, spread out quite evenly, with only here and there a lump or mound of bodies to break the surface. Poor, driven people of the abyss, hunted helots. They lay there as the rabbits in California after a drive. Note, in those days, so sparsely populated was the land that wild animals often became pests. In California, the custom of rabbit driving obtained. On a given day, all the farmers in the locality would assemble and sweep across the country in converging lines, driving the rabbits by scores of thousands into a prepared enclosure where they were clubbed to death by men and boys. Up the street and down I looked. There was no movement, no sound. The quiet buildings looked down upon the scene from their many windows, and once only I saw an arm that moved in that dead stream. I swear I saw it move, with a strange, writhing gesture of agony, and with it lifted a head, gory with nameless horror, that gibbered at me, and then lay down again, and moved no more. I remember another street, with quiet buildings on either side, and the panic that smote me into consciousness as again I saw the people of the abyss, but this time in a stream that flowed and came on. And then I saw there was nothing to fear. The stream moved slowly, while from it arose groans and lamentations, cursings, babblings of senility, hysteria, and insanity. For these were the very young and the very old, the feeble and the sick, the helpless and the hopeless, all the wreckage of the ghetto. The burning of the great ghetto on the south side had driven them forth into the inferno of the street-fighting, and whither they wended and whatever became of them I did not know and never learned. Note. It was long a question of debate whether the burning of the Southside ghetto was accidental or whether it was done by the mercenaries. But it is definitely settled now that the ghetto was fired by the mercenaries under orders from their chiefs. I have faint memories of breaking a window and hiding in some shop to escape a street mob that was pursued by soldiers. Also a bomb burst near me, once, in some still street, where, look as I would, up and down, I could see no human being. But my next sharp recollection begins with the crack of a rifle, and an abrupt becoming aware that I was being fired at by a soldier in an automobile. The shot missed, and the next moment I was screaming and motioning the signals. My memory of riding in the automobile is very hazy, though this ride, in turn, is broken by one vivid picture. The crack of the rifle of the soldier sitting beside me made me open my eyes, and I saw George Milford, whom I had known in the Pell Street days, sinking slowly down to the sidewalk. Even as he sank, the soldier fired again, and Milford doubled in, then flung his body out, and fell sprawling. The soldier chuckled, and the automobile sped on. The next I knew after that, I was awakened out of a sound sleep by a man who walked up and down close beside me. His face was drawn and strained, and the sweat rolled down his nose from his forehead. One hand was clutched tightly against his chest by the other hand, and blood dripped down upon the floor as he walked. He wore the uniform of the mercenaries. From without, as through thick walls, came the muffled roar of bursting bombs. I was in some building that was locked in combat with some other building. A surgeon came in to dress the wounded soldier, and I learned that it was two in the afternoon. My headache was no better, and the surgeon paused from his work long enough to give me a powerful drug that would depress the heart and bring relief. I slept again, and the next I knew I was on top of the building. The immediate fighting had ceased, and I was watching the balloon attack on the fortresses. Someone had an arm around me, and I was leaning close against him. It came to me quite as a matter of course that this was Ernest, and I found myself wondering how he had got his hair and eyebrows so badly singed. It was by the merest chance that we had found each other in that terrible city. He had had no idea that I had left New York, 
and coming through the room where I lay asleep, could not at first believe that it was I. Little more I saw of the Chicago Commune. After watching the balloon attack, Ernest took me down into the heart of the building, where I slept the afternoon out and the night. The third day we spent in the building, and on the fourth, Ernest having got permission and an automobile from the authorities, we left Chicago. My headache was gone, but body and soul I was very tired. I lay back against Ernest in the automobile, and with apathetic eyes watched the soldiers trying to get the machine out of the city. Fighting was still going on, but only in isolated localities. Here and there whole districts were still in possession of the comrades, but such districts were surrounded and guarded by heavy bodies of troops. In a hundred segregated traps were the comrades thus held while the work of subjugating them went on. Subjugation meant death, for no quarter was given, and they fought heroically to the last man. Note. Numbers of the buildings held out over a week, while one held out eleven days. Each building had to be stormed like a fort, and the mercenaries fought their way upward floor by floor. It was deadly fighting. Quarter was neither given nor taken, and in the fighting the revolutionists had the advantage of being above. While the revolutionists were wiped out, the loss was not one-sided. The proud Chicago proletariat lived up to its ancient boast. For as many of itself as were killed, it killed that many of the enemy. Whenever we approached such localities, the guards turned us back and sent us around. Once, the only way past two strong positions of the comrades was through a burnt section that lay between. From either side we could hear the rattle and roar of war, while the automobile picked its way through smoking ruins and tottering walls. Often the streets were blocked by mountains of debris that compelled us to go around. We were in a labyrinth of ruin, and our progress was slow. The stockyards, ghetto, plant, and everything, were smouldering ruins. Far off to the right a wide smoke haze dimmed the sky. The town of Pullman, the soldier chauffeur told us, or what had been the town of Pullman, for it was utterly destroyed. He had driven the machine out there with dispatches on the afternoon of the third day. Some of the heaviest fighting had occurred there, he said, many of the streets being rendered impassable by the heaps of the dead. Swinging around the shattered walls of a building in the stockyards district, the automobile was stopped by a wave of dead. It was for all the world like a wave tossed up by the sea. It was patent to us what had happened. As the mob charged past the corner, it had been swept at right angles and point-blank range by the machine guns drawn up on the cross street. But disaster had come to the soldiers. A chance bomb must have exploded among them, for the mob, checked until its dead and dying formed the wave, had white-capped and flung forward its foam of living fighting slaves. Soldiers and slaves lay together, torn and mangled, around and over the wreckage of the automobiles and guns. Ernest sprang out. A familiar pair of shoulders in a cotton shirt and a familiar fringe of white hair had caught his eye. I did not watch him, and it was not until he was back beside me and we were speeding on that he said, It was Bishop Morehouse. Soon we were in the green country, and I took one last glance back at the smoke-filled sky. Faint and far came the low thud of an explosion, and I turned my face against Ernest's breast and wept softly for the cause that was lost. Ernest's arm about me was eloquent with love. "'For this time lost, dear heart,' he said, "'but not forever. We have learned. "'Tomorrow the cause will rise again, "'strong with wisdom and discipline.' "'The automobile drew up at a railroad station. "'Here we would catch a train to New York. "'As we waited on the platform, three trains thundered past, "'bound west to Chicago. "'They were crowded with ragged, unskilled laborers.' People of the abyss. Slave levies for the rebuilding of Chicago, Ernest said. 
You see, the Chicago slaves are all killed. End of chapter 24 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org